My name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving in this place as pastor. It's wonderful to have you guys this morning. Um, one of the things we're going to do today before we dismiss the kids is I want to invite, uh, if you're an elder or if you went through our sort of new members process and you wanted to sort of choose to make this place your home, I just want to invite you to stand up and come forward. We're just going to do a little introduction and prayer of the folks that are sort of calling this place home. So if you want to make your way up, I know it's always a little embarrassing to come forward. It's wonderful to see. If you're an elder, please also come up. Good to have you guys. You guys can come up a little bit. That way people can see you. Don't go all the way down there. Come up a little bit. There you go. No hiding on the bottom. Yeah, all the way up. All the way up. I like the shirt, man. Very aqua. It's good. You guys are tall. All right. Uh, so what we're going to do... Is we're just going to do maybe intro. Okay. So if you're uh, just maybe name and then we'll pass it down and then Paul will pray at the end. So just name and maybe introduce your kids. I'm Brianne Vertries and this is my husband Brian who could not be here <laughs> today. Yes. And we're totally is... <laughs> going to do that again in the future. You've just set a trend. <laughs> he was really sad because he couldn't, he couldn't be here. This is our daughter Everly and our son Lang. I'm Andy DeMaster, and this is Lucy, my daughter. And I'm Rachel DeMaster, and this is our other daughter, Josie. Hello, I'm uh, Tom Jaheen. I'm Lucas McCormick. I'm Keziah Doyle. I'm John Northrup. I'm Diana Northrup. I'm Carol Ochoa. I'm Christina Sierra. And I'm Paul Davis. I'm also Paul Davis. <laughs> yeah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing your kingdom to us through your son, Jesus Christ, and the great story of redemption that brings us here to this moment together because of you and because of your son and what you've done for us. And the story of the church that you've brought into being so that our stories can be brought into your story and be part of the story of this place and, and our lives together. And as we bring in new members, Father, we add their stories to ours. And it's this great body of Christ that we celebrate that. We celebrate what it is to worship together, to learn together, to submit to one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, and to confess our sins to one another. That we would be healed and we would be, we'd be grown by your spirit in your kingdom. Thank you for this body that you've given to us. Thank you for Wellspring. Thank you for these that have expressed a desire to be part of this body. Pray that you would, they would feel your presence into this story of what you're doing here. And you pray, pray that you'd be with us as we welcome them in, that we would open our hearts and our homes and our minds and our spirits and our prayers to them. We pray, Father, to the end that you would be glorified, that we would be built up individually, we would be built up as a body together as you desire for your church, for your kingdom. Thank you for this time and these people 
and what you will want to do here. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give them a round of applause. You guys can grab your seats. No, you don't have to feel uncomfortable up on the stage anymore. Feel free. Now, if you're a kid at Wellspring and you want to hang out with some other kids, Miss Trish is back here. Feel free to gather with her, hang out with her. If you're staying here with me, I'm glad to have you. Uh, as I said before, my name is Tony. It's fun to have you here. Uh, we're in a series called Unforced Rhythms of Grace. And what we're trying to do is lean into what are the rhythms and practices that shape us as followers of Jesus? We've used uh, Matthew 11 and this idea of taking on the yoke of Jesus. Jesus says, right, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So what are the rhythms and practices that we need to adopt to learn from Jesus? I was reading uh, this week from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.21 says that Jesus has provided an example for us to follow that we might walk in his steps. But this word example is really fascinating. It's upogramo, so gramo is where we get the word grammar, and the idea of example is this. Uh, back in history, when the Greeks wanted to teach young children how to write, they would write out the letter, and then they would have them trace it. And what Peter is saying is that we are supposed to take Jesus as our example, just as a young child would trace a letter in order to learn how to write. So we are supposed to take Jesus' example as the baseline that informs how we are to live. And that's the baseline of what we are trying to do in this series. And we're talking about all key practices, things that are central to what it looks like to follow Jesus in this series. Over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to talk about generosity. We're going to talk about hospitality. We're going to talk about how our stories inform how we practice the way of Jesus. And we're going to talk about worship. We're going to do that into Advent as Advent goes. Today, uh, we're going to talk about generosity. Now, if, you, if this is your first time visiting, um, I promise we don't talk about money every weekend, uh, so sorry about that uh, if this is your first time. If you, can t if you don't trust me, ask someone in the row next to you. Um, this is not, like we try and create a culture here where money is out of the overflow of our hearts in discipleship to Jesus, not a place of pressure uh, or guilt around money. And yet, we also have a high value for the scriptures. Right? And Jesus, and in the New, Old and New Testament, right, money is talked about over 800 times. And if you actually look at the parables of Jesus, half of his parables have to do with money. So actually, for the reason, the reason we're going to talk about it today is I actually think it would be biblically unfaithful for us to never talk about money, and yet, we're not going to talk about it all the time. But when we do, we'll try and give as straightforward a sermon, a context as we can. With that said, I uh, just want to say this. When I was first encountered the person of Jesus in college, no one ever taught me how to connect Jesus and money together. I was taught how to pray. I was taught how to read the Bible. I was taught how to share the gospel. No one said one thing to me about money and its connection to following Jesus. So I did what was really natural to me. I saved a ton of money, and I lived crazy simply. This is just sort of what comes naturally to me. I have very little value for, like, creature comfort, so I can just, like, save lots of money. So when I, I made my first job, was in the Peace Corps, I made $5,000, and I think I saved $5,000. 
My next job, I made $19,000. I was really raking it in, as you can tell. I made $19,000, and I think I saved thirteen dollars or $14,000. This is just like, I am built to live very simply and save money. That's sort of how God made me. Now, I read the Bible a fair amount, so I started to realize Jesus talked about money a lot. No one told me I should give, but I started to get the feeling that I probably should. And so I decided I was going to take a huge risk, a really, really big risk. You see, my friends and I, when we were working at these group homes, we would come over to Santa Cruz, and almost every Tuesday night, we would grab dollar pizza. Dollar pizza, pleasure point pizza, Tuesday nights, and I was like, I'm going to go for it. And I treated both of my friends to a dollar slice each. And it was so painful that I really couldn't even enjoy the pizza I had. (laughs) And what you'll see over the next few weeks, months, years, is I started to really try and give. And I would give $5 here, $5 there. And it wasn't until I met my wife, Jeannie, who is actually really generous, that I realized that I was dramatically overestimating my generosity. Because I gave tiny amounts all the time, I thought I was being really generous. But when I actually met my wife, and more on this later, I realized that I was giving, you know, the average Christian in the United States gives 2.5% of their income to God's work in the world. The average secular person gives about a a percentage and a half. I was maybe giving one-tenth of 1% of my income, right, on pizza and random stuff. Now, the reason I share this is simply to say this. All I'm going to talk about today is what I have learned on my own because someone wasn't there at the beginning to disciple me so that I could connect the dots between following Jesus and how that related to my money. But I don't come in today having it all figured out. I come in as someone who's tempted to worship money over God for my provision. And what I want to do today is share what I think is in the scriptures so that we don't do what I did. Now, to do that, I want to sort of flip back, not just to Jesus, but to the Old Testament. What we'll see in the Old Testament is it provides some of the foundations for uh, Jesus. But I think specifically, I want to focus on this idea of the tithe. Because when I hear the sort of the dominant question, the dominant thing that shapes uh, most churchgoers giving is this idea of the tithe. The tithe simply means is a tenth. The first time it pops up is there's this guy named Abraham. He conquers these people. There's this guy named Melchizedek who is the priest of Sodom, and he gives 10% of his tithe, 10% to him, right? This predates the law. So this is sort of the the first instance. It's the key one-off. Really, when tithing becomes a practice of the Old Testament as God rescues his people from slavery, and he creates rules and practices and rhythms that are supposed to shape them into his image, right? This is the law. And what you see is that this idea of the tithe starts repeating all over the place. The thing that's interesting, though, is there's actually been a ton of debate over the last, I don't know, century and a half over what Hebrew people actually gave in the tithe. There's one group of people that says, oh, it was 10%. There's another group of people that says, actually, if you look at the way the tithe is given, it was actually closer to 23.3% as a baseline. Let me explain. 10% of their giving went to uh, the priests. That's how the argument goes. 10% went to the priests, right? This comes out of uh, Numbers 18, right? The priests, this is how they funded the temple. This is how the priests got to live, right? Another 10% went 
went to the feasts, right? This is in Deuteronomy 14. So they had these pilgrimages, these feasts, and 10% of their agriculture, 10% of what they made would go be dedicated there. And then every third year, again, Deuteronomy 14, they would give 10% to their, uh, the poor, right? So every third year, that adds up to 23.3%. Now, I share this because there's a lot of debate about how much was the baseline giving that God established. So 10%, 23.3%, but the point is not simply that. On top of that, wherever you decide you want to give, wherever the Hebrew person worshiping God wanted to give, on top of that, actually half of the giving was determined by the giver. Let's just look at this chart real quick. So there's different eight categories here. Half of them are determined by the giver and not by the law. So up to 50% of the giving that was happening in the Old Testament wasn't predetermined. It was actually determined by the giver based on ability and sort of whether the heart sort of nudged them, whether they felt nudged by the Spirit to give. Do you see that? Right? So half of the giving there. So you have 10% or 23.3%, and then based on that, you had all these other opportunities to give, which actually bumped the giving up again. If you don't believe me, uh, if you read uh, Josephus, is this first century historian, in his book Antiquities, he writes this. In addition to the two tithes, which I have already directed you to pay each other, the one for the Levites and the other for the banquets, you should devote a third every third year to the distribution of such things that are lacking to widowed women and orphan children, right? So that's the argument for the 23.3. Then you have half of the giving predetermined, right? Which brings us, I think a good example would be the festival of weeks. This is Deuteronomy 16.10. Celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord has given you. Right? The festival of weeks is simply Pentecost. So he's saying, hey, show up. How has God blessed you? Give according to that. Awesome. Like, you know, this is not predetermined. The giver gets to decide. All right, that's my super quick Old Testament sketch. I want to sort of fast forward to the tithe then in the New Testament. So it's interesting is Jesus only talks about it twice. Jesus talks about money all the time, but he only talks about the tithe twice. A lot of people think that he affirms the tithe because if you go into Matthew 23, 23, he rips into the Pharisees. And this is what he says. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, the tithe, right, without neglecting the former. So many people think, all right, so Jesus is affirming the tithe, 10% plus 23.3%, whatever you land on that. But he's saying, hey, guys, it's not just about this amount of money you give. Right? Jesus is after something much more. And this is why I think Jesus doesn't talk about the tithe as much as we, we might think, but actually instead talks about sort of a radical perspective on generosity. Now, I want to sort of focus on one text in the New Testament because I think this will really help us understand Jesus' heart when he comes to this idea of generosity. It's in Matthew 6. So Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous teachings. In it, he starts talking about money. And this is what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
Now, I think most of us know, like, if you invest a lot of money in stuff, stuff decays, right? If you buy a lot of clothes and they store in your closet, moths can eat them. And even if you don't have a lot of money invested in stuff, you know if you invest a lot of money in the stock market, it can go up and it can go down. There's an unpredictability there. And Jesus is simply, I think, saying, hey, invest your money in what is, feels like around God. It's something more permanent, God and his kingdom. And then he follows up with this fascinating statement in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, one of the things that often happens, I think, in church, and one of the reasons we often disconnect money and discipleship is this very fact that we disconnect money and treasure. And Jesus is here saying, actually, guys, they're way more connected than you think. In fact, what he is saying is that our treasure directs where our heart goes. I'm going to do a little doodle because uh, I think it will help us sort of lean in here. So one of the things we talk about often at Wellspring is this idea of centered set. So, right, if let's just call that Jesus. So the idea is we want to move closer to the person of Jesus, right? So if you're out here, the idea is to move closer to him. It doesn't really matter where you are closeness-wise. The point is to move closer. But some of us, right, we are, we're moving away. And some of us are just sort of not going anywhere, you know? We're stuck, right? And this is sort of a key operating dynamic or paradigm that we use in talking about what does it look like to follow Jesus? Are you moving closer? Are you stuck where you are? Or are you moving farther away? Now, if we were going to loop into sort of this idea of treasure and heart, what we might say is this, right? We want to say our heart can move towards Jesus independent of our treasure, But what Jesus is saying something, I don't know if you guys can see, I'll redo this. He's saying something like this, right? Our treasure affects where our heart goes. So what we want to do is we want to disconnect these. And Jesus is saying, actually, our heart is tethered to our treasure. So if our treasure is moving towards Jesus and his kingdom, our heart will also. If our treasure is not being invested in Jesus and his kingdom, our heart will not be either. There's this guy named Jeff Anderson, and he wrote a book on giving. It's called Plastic Donuts. Uh, It's a silly title. Anyway, I, I can't get into why it's called that. He writes this. In my discussions with Christians about giving, no opinion has been more frequently expressed than this one. The amount doesn't really matter. It's all about the heart. I understand the good intentions behind this statement. Often we pull the heart card, though, to avoid deeper questions about the amount we give. While the heart is crucial to the act of giving and to our gifts, the amount matters too. In fact, it's the amount that helps engage the heart. So if you spend an amount that matters very little to you, it will move your heart very little. If you spend an amount that matters more to you, it will move a more meaningful amount of your heart in that direction. The amount gets the attention of your heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, if Jesus wasn't clear enough, he starts ramping up his argument, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now here it's easy to kind of get confused. You're like, wait, I sort of got the treasure thing. Now you're talking about eyes and light and what is happening. Um, Truthfully, there's a few things at play. One, Jesus is making a wordplay in Greek between this idea of healthy and generous, which sound very, very similar. And then two, he's using a cultural context where this idea of the evil eye, right? There's the evil eye, which is sort of called the greedy eye. And what he's simply saying is what he said in the previous verse, that our money has a disproportionate uh, impact on our discipleship and on our lives. Now, if his hearers didn't understand it that time, I think they will in verse 24, because then he says this, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I think most of us kind of get this too, right? So imagine you had two full-time jobs with two bosses that were telling you how to allocate all your time. At some point, you're going to have to pick, right? Because you're going to do a bad job pleasing both of those bosses. We get this. In the same way, Jesus is saying, you cannot try and please money and God. Now, but when I was in my 20s, I got sort of, I, I read this a lot of times, and I never applied it to me because I was like, I'm not serving money. Like, who serves money? And then the Spirit said to me something like, oh, I'll tell you whether you serve money. Just show me how much you give, and I will tell you whether you are serving money or whether you are serving me. Right, because I was really able to disconnect my giving, my generosity from my discipleship. And I think Jesus here is saying, ah, not so fast. But I think it's easy to do, right? Because reading texts like this makes me at least feel very uncomfortable. Because Jesus is sort of getting at the heart of me and my proneness towards being a miser, Right? And that makes me very uncomfortable. I think one of the reasons I realized as I sort of, in my journey on money, as I was trying to figure out how to allocate my treasure and move my heart towards Jesus, I realized that actually a lot of my savings bent wasn't just natural. Part of it is I had this experience in college where the person who was paying for my college threatened to sort of pull out from helping to fund my college because I was thinking about going into the Peace Corps. And this person said to me, you are my investment. I expect a return on my investment. And I remember in that moment thinking, I will never be financially dependent on another person again. I will never trust another person to take care of me because I never want to experience this level of vulnerability again. And later on, when I uh, was sort of considering giving more, I realized what I was terrified of, what I was super anxious about, was that I would not have enough when the time came. That I would give, I would invest in God's kingdom, and then I would turn around and be like, what? Now I don't have enough for myself. And I wrestled with that a lot and a lot, and then I realized, I think that's why Jesus says what comes next. This is what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. This 
Jesus' words about anxiety are grounded in financial generosity and saying, hey, do you see the lilies of the field? Do you see the sparrow? I care for you way more than them. Therefore, you can give. You can be generous. You can worship me with your money because I will take care of you. And Jesus isn't saying don't work. Jesus isn't saying don't be responsible with your finances. But he is saying, hey guys, I think you can focus on me and my kingdom. You can invest in what I am doing in the world and know that I will take care of you. I think this is one of the reasons actually the tithe was instituted in the law in the first place. It was like a heart check on a people to say, who is your provider? Who is the one that gives you all you need? Jesus follows up his words about anxiety and provision in verse 32 by talking about the people around them and who they compare themselves to. In verse 32, he says this, For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I think too often, right, in our culture and in theirs, we're tempted to compare our giving, our generosity, with those who are outside the kingdom, right? So we watch our neighbor buy a bigger house, we watch our neighbor get the best car, we watch our neighbor do these things, and then we think, well, that's what I should do. And look around and we compare our generosity with those around us and we think, I'm actually pretty generous. When in reality, we should be comparing ourselves to Jesus and his kingdom, not our secular neighbor. And this is why Jesus then follows up that comment in verse 33 with this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. But what does seek first look like, right? Like, I think all of us would say, yes, I want to seek first God's kingdom. I want to do it. And then we're like, but does that mean I have to like give away all my possessions? No. Though I would say... Jesus did ask one person to do that in the New Testament, and the guy said no and turned away from him. So I do think it's possible that any one of us could be asked to give away everything we have. But I don't think most of us will. I don't think that's God's invitation for most of us. Jeff Anderson in his book, Plastic Donuts, offers a few different principles that I think are really helpful for us. Uh, The first one is this. The amount matters. Right? When it comes to generosity, the amount does matter. Right? Our treasure directs our heart. So I would encourage you, right, as we're sort of leaning into this, what are you actually giving? Actually think about it. Like, do crunch the numbers. How much are you actually giving? How much do you make? What percentage is that? And then talk with God about it. The amount does matter, right? Because it directs our heart. But within that, Point two is, you get to determine the amount. I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus doesn't focus so much on the tithe in the New Testament. Because in the end, he wants us to choose him. He wants us to say, God, I want to worship you with all of who I am. I choose you, and therefore I am choosing to give you this much as an act of worship that I am going to have my life shaped by your kingdom and not my own desires. Not my own desires to accumulate, not my own sort of need for personal safety, whatever that is, right? That God, I trust you. There's this great 
example in 2 Corinthians 9-7. Paul is raising funds. There's a famine in Jerusalem. And he's like, hey, guys, you know, do you want to give to it? And then uh, the people in Corinth uh, dedicate an amount, and Paul says this, each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He loves it when we say, God, I want to invest my heart into your kingdom because I know when my treasure goes there, my heart will be there too. He wants us not to be pressured, not to be guilted. He wants us to love him. And part of our expression of choosing God and of loving him is directing our money and our finances into his kingdom. But we get to determine the amount. Three, we give according to our ability. In 2 Corinthians, Paul also tells the Corinthians, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Right? He's not saying, compare yourself to a billionaire or a multimillionaire or whatever, a trillionaire. What has God given you to steward? What resources has he given you? Out of those resources, he says, steward them according to your ability according to where you're at. But this doesn't mean, I'm really anxious about money. I'm stressed right now. Mm, I think I'll pass on the giving thing. Why? Because point four, it's all about the heart. And it's all about our heart, and our heart follows our treasure. And at least in my experience, right, the heart is often a battleground for our allegiance. I didn't actually realize how much, how la- ungenerous I was, right, until I met my wife, Jeannie. And part of the reason was, is because I got to control all of my finances. I never had someone else coming in and saying, huh, let's look at how much you make, how much you give, and how much you save, and look at it and say, hmm, I wonder if God might have something more for you. I needed an external person to come in, and this is where I think Jeannie was God's gift to me. Because she came in and said, Tony, this is not okay. (laughs) Like, we need to be more generous. And truthfully, it was terrifying. Because all my heart wanted to do was to save Right? All I wanted to do was to stockpile my resources for some sort of worst-case scenario so that I would never be vulnerable again. In fairness, right? because I, well, I don't know what that was, because I did save, like I was able to pay off all of Jeannie's student loans. We got married? No, thank you, yeah. <laughs> the most generous thing I've ever done, yeah. Really self-interested, though, because we were sharing finances, but whatever. But what I really needed, I needed someone else to look at my life according to my finances and say, huh, I think God is inviting us to do way more. Tony, do you trust God in this process? The truth is, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think most people want to keep their giving, their saving, and their income totally distinct and private because most of us are terrified of allowing someone else in. 
I was leading a group a few weeks ago, and we were talking about this very passage. And we all agreed, okay, yes, my heart follows my treasure, and I want to worship God, and I don't want to worship money. So I said, who here in their entire life of following Jesus has ever shared how much they give, make, and save with another Christian? One hand went up in the room. And as I've talked with people in that room and others after, I just realized there's so much shame and fear and anxiety about what other people will think, right? About how much we spend at Costco or how many vacations we go on or the house that we bought or how much we give or whatever. But my concern is that for so many of us, we are allowing our fear of judgment, we are allowing our worry and anxiety and potential shame to dictate our discipleship. And I think God has so much more for us than that. I think Jesus asks us, you know, who is, who are you serving? He asks us, do you want to love me and know me at a deeper level? And I think he says to us, well, then it involves our money and making some choices there. Because where your heart is, right, where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. All right, so if we're going to take some of these principles, some of this sort of biblical side, and now apply it on a very practical side, where do we start? I think we actually have to start with this idea of money and anxiety. And I think we have to start with prayer. Because I think for some of us, even just talking about money is like deeply threatening. And we're afraid And maybe we're in debt. Maybe we've made bad financial decisions. Maybe life has just been brutal to us and we are just worried that if we actually let control a little bit with our money, that we will just be hurt, that we will be too vulnerable and it makes us terrified. So I think we have to bring God into this process. I think with money anxiety, so one of the things we're gonna do today, before, during, and after communion, we're just gonna have some people here to pray for us. And this isn't an opportunity to say, I mean, you can, I guess, but this isn't really an opportunity for you to like let your entire budget, your entire sort of money perspective, everything on the table. Maybe you just go up to someone and say, I struggle with fear and anxiety when it comes to money. Would you pray that God would be with me in it? It's about inviting God into our anxiety, into our fears when it comes to money. Right, because if God is not there, we are not going to make changes, right? We are not going to direct our treasure towards Jesus. We're just going to do what we've always done. So during communion, we're going to have an opportunity for you to be prayed for. Two, I, I think we need to think about sort of the frame of worship and generosity. Right, Jesus says we cannot serve both God and money. So what does it look like to worship Jesus, and direct our money and invest it in his kingdom. I think for some of us, right, like we can make some changes really quickly. In a worshipful response, we can say, all right, God, you're inviting me to think about this, right? Maybe we take some time this week, right? And you just crunch the numbers. How much are you giving? How much do you make? I don't care if it's net or gross. I don't care what, how much do you make? And just take some time to pray with Jesus and say, what do you think? God, what do you think? God, reveal my own heart to me. 
Right? We need to reconnect worship and generosity. And if he says, ah, a little more here, then do a little more. And for some of you, that might take three years to get there. It might take 18 months. Maybe you just do a half a percent increase each month, 1% increase each month to get there. Some of you could just do it overnight. But the point is, whether you're in college, whether you're retired, whether you're in your peak earning years, wherever you are, let's reconnect worship and generosity in the presence of God. Say, God, what do you think? Reveal my heart to me. Faithfulness and community. I think pretty much Christians are willing to talk about almost anything other than money with another person. If someone struggles with internet pornography, like there's someone to talk to about that. If someone has an affair and commits adultery, like we will often talk about that. But money, that's private. I think that there is a huge power in the hiding and the secrecy around money that we have to deal with if we want our treasure to guide our heart. So I would invite you, find one person in your life who has no power over you. Find one person in your life that is, loves you, that you know you can trust, that is totally going to honor and respect you and tell them how much you make, how much you give, and how much you save, and maybe even go over your budget with them. Don't ask me. Ask someone who is maybe even outside of this community. I don't care. Ask someone. Someone that you know will love you. Some of us need external input in order to be faithful to Jesus. Lastly, I would say this. I think some of us need skills and expertise help. Right, so I know for me, like, I never learned how to do a budget. I think some of us haven't. Some of us are in that stage where we're trying to figure out estate planning and figure out what do we do with our estates, the resources we've accumulated, right? There's, and there's a huge spectrum in there. Uh, Paul Gregory, who's one of our members, has offered his expertise on the finance side. He's just going to create little pods where if you have any questions about budgeting, like basic budgeting, how to allocate your money, so that you're faithfully doing it, spending it on yourself, saving some, giving some. Uh, he's going to create a little pod where you can do that. Or you're curious about estate planning. Like, what do I do when I die? How do I allocate some of my money? So we have two signups. One is by that back window. One is over by the piano over here. And if you're interested in either budgeting or estate planning help, he, he'll be here. Also, Navigators, this is sort of God's timing, is doing a finance seminar next Saturday. <laughs> In the morning, uh, there'll be two different things, from 8.30 to 12.30, something like that. Um, and if you'd like more information on that, come and talk to me. But if you want, it's five points on finance. It might be helpful. Now, one last thing before we sort of dive into communion and worship and all that is one of the things we're also trying to do is help on the kids' side. How do families lean in here? So one of the things we're going to do, actually, through the end of the year is we're going to do a Wellspring pajama drive. Um, This is not adult pajamas. Uh, This is kid pajamas. But this idea of there's lots of kids in the world who don't have pajamas, and we're going to take all the pajamas that we raise, and we're going to give them into foster care to kids who don't have. And my challenge to you as parents is talk to your kids about it. Do they want to contribute some money, some time, 
to actually getting some pajamas. And parents, if you're going to buy the pajamas, I encourage you, make sure your kids contribute something as a way of saying, ah, maybe even pray together as a family to be a part of this drive so the kids can connect. There are other kids that are in need and we want to help them with the resources God has given us. Now, what I want to do um, right now is just sort of center us as we enter into worship on the person of Jesus. Right? Because in the end, Jesus was this amazing example to us. Right? He gives a sacrifice to God that is a pleasing sacrifice of his life. And when we're talking about giving, that is what we are talking about. Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, they give him a gift and he says this about their gift. They are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And when we're talking about giving, that's what we're talking about. How do we offer pleasing sacrifices to God? Whoops, I'm about to spill that. Don't look. There we go. On the night Jesus uh, was betrayed, he gathered with some of his friends. And he uh, brought some bread out and he broke it and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he grabbed some wine that was on the table. He gave thanks for it and he said, this is my blood was shed for you and for all so that all sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. I just want to invite the worship team up and I want to invite uh, people that are going to serve communion up. I want to invite us just into a posture of prayer. God, we, we want to remember your example. We want to take your grace as the starting place of our generosity. But God, uh, many of us struggle with this. It creates fear in us. It creates anxiety. And God, in this moment, as we celebrate communion, we just say that it is all about you and your sacrifice and your grace to us. That we are not earners of your grace. That no amount of money we give will shift our standing with you. You love us, Lord. But God, we do want to draw nearer to you And God, we recognize that that is connected to how we use our money. So God, in this moment, we just pray that you would move among us. Holy Spirit, in this moment, we just say that you would bring peace to us. You would bring conviction to us. God, that we would worship you with all of who we are. So just invite you um, before coming up to communion, just to maybe have a quick process with God about your heart as it relates to generosity and finances. Listen to his word to you. Holy Spirit, speak to us. God, we are broken creatures and we need your grace. We need your empowering spirit to move us to follow you.
as you feel led. You can come down the center and receive communion. What we do is we just take a piece of bread and dip it into the grape juice as a way of receiving the goodness of God to us. If you'd like prayer, there will be people in the back praying for you, willing to pray for you. Come, Lord, be with us.